0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and openly talking about postpartum depression. Yes, it's more than the baby blues. Every episode, you get a new host to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today you've got me, Shana Roth, a senior producer at Slate, including for The Waves. I really, really wanted my kid. If you've listened to our award-winning Waves episode on IVF, you know it took work for me to get pregnant. But all the wanting and the trying and the shots and the years and years of effort couldn't stave off my postpartum depression. I was lucky in that I was kind of ready for it in that abstract sort of way that you can be prepared for something you honestly refuse to meaningfully look into ahead of time. I was aware of what it was. I was aware that I would likely have it because I've dealt with anxiety and depression most of my life. But the truth is, there's no real preparing for it. It's difficult for everyone. But for me, there was no way to emotionally get myself ready for the feeling of total and complete inadequacy, the inability to snuggle with my baby because I felt like I always had to be doing something, the overwhelming belief that if I just left, they would be much better off without me. I look back on my daughter's first few months with a lot of regret of wishing I had enjoyed it more, with shame that I didn't soak it all in like so many people tell you to do when you have a new baby. But like I said, I was still very lucky. Early on, I got a therapist. I have a very understanding husband who is always taking on more than his share of child work. A lot of women They aren't as lucky as I was, and there are women who experience something even worse than postpartum depression, something that can be deadly. It's called postpartum psychosis, and Jessica Winter had an incredible piece on it recently in The New Yorker. She spoke with a woman who killed her child while experiencing postpartum psychosis. She also spoke with a surviving family member to really paint a compelling and necessary picture of what postpartum psychosis and depression can do to a mother, to a child to a family and to a community. Jessica is an editor at the New Yorker where she writes about family and education. The article is what we still don't understand about postpartum psychosis. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to be joined by Jessica to get into all of it. Stay with us. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, please subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning, and we've got a lot cooking there for you. So you should check out last week's episode about crank diets and weight loss. We've also been talking about whether or not men should be able to write women. We've talked about menopause. There's a lot there for you to dig into. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm here now with Jessica Winter to talk about postpartum psychosis and postpartum depression. Jessica, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Your piece in The New Yorker is what we still don't understand about postpartum psychosis. And the short answer is a lot. But let's start with some things that we do understand. I personally had postpartum depression. A lot of people who give birth get postpartum depression. And then you have what a bulk of your piece is about, which is postpartum psychosis. Both do not get the attention that they really deserve and need from the medical community. But what is the difference between the two?
1: Sure. So we're talking about an umbrella of disorders, postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. The somewhat unfortunate abbreviation is PMADS. And the PMADs include postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, and these are very common. They're estimated to affect one in seven birthing people. They are not well understood, but there is a consensus that there's some kind of connection to this massive surge of hormones that happens before birth. Estrogen and progesterone surge before birth, and there's a corresponding plunge after birth. Um, Sleep deprivation is a big risk factor for developing postpartum mood and anxiety disorders. A lack of social support is a big risk factor for these kinds of disorders. Now, postpartum psychosis is rare. It's very rare. It only occurs in an estimated one or two per thousand births. And with postpartum psychosis, uh, the person may experience mania, delusional thinking, and oral hallucinations, uh, voices in your head, and postpartum psychosis is considered to be one of the worst psychiatric emergencies that can befall a person. Um, There's a high rate of suicide and filicide connected to postpartum psychosis. It's between four and five percent. My piece in the New Yorker, in fact, was uh, prompted by a terrible recent case uh, in a a suburb of Boston involving filicide and possibly postpartum psychosis. So with postpartum psychosis, we're talking about a very rare sort of subset of a very uncommon umbrella of disorders.
0: When you say for postpartum psychosis, it's considered one of the worst psychiatric emergencies. When I hear that, I assume that this is something that people are prepared to deal with, given that it is so bad. It's like a heart attack. We, we can handle heart attacks. We know what to do, or medical professionals know what to do in the event of a heart attack because it's so bad and so life-threatening. So what is the reaction by professionals to postpartum psychosis? Right.
1: So I think when we're looking at the medical response to postpartum psychosis, it's really useful to compare the approach in the U.S. with our managed care system and the approach in pretty much any other industrialized country that has uh, a universal healthcare system of some kind. So uh, for my piece, I spoke with women in the UK and the Netherlands who experienced postpartum psychosis. Um, One was hospitalized for six weeks. The other was hospitalized, I think, for 12 weeks. Um, They received a great deal of outpatient care. They were placed on antipsychotic medications. And because they were hospitalized for so long, the medications that they were taking had a chance to take their full effect, and so they could be observed um, under these medications over a a relatively long period of time. Uh, They had the option of being admitted to a mother-infant psychiatric ward, where babies can stay with their mothers while they're being treated, which is huge, because if you don't have that, uh, the mother's going to have a huge transition separating from her baby. And then when she's eventually released, she's going to have a huge transition um, acclimating again to caring for a baby and and, and being part of of her household again. And obviously they don't have to wrangle with insurance companies. And then if you look at the approach in the U.S. with our market-based system, the approach to postpartum psychosis, it's, it's very similar to the approach to any kind of mental illness in the US. The model is to stabilize and discharge. You hospitalize the patient for a few days, maybe a week or two, until they are deemed not to be a danger to themselves or others anymore, and you're discharged. And, and you're probably discharged before your medications have taken their full effect. There isn't a lot of wraparound in outpatient care. There are no mother-infant 24-7 psych wards in the US because no insurer will agree to cover the admission of a healthy infant. And so, a lot more falls on the shoulders of the birthing person themselves and their family members and their loved ones to kind of fill in those gaps. And on top of all that, it might be really expensive, uh, depending on your insurance or your lack thereof. So, when we're talking about the landscape of response, in some ways, it's really radically different depending on where you live.
0: One of the most devastating events that can occur with postpartum psychosis is mothers either committing suicide or murdering their young children. And when we think of mothers murdering their children, I think a lot of us instantly think of like Casey Anthony, of big courtroom scenes, tons and tons of media attention. The Casey Anthony case wasn't a postpartum psychosis case and she was found not guilty, but but that's still I think the image that people get is that it's this huge sort of popular culture uh, circus that happens. But what you wrote though, and the people that you spoke with is, is far more compelling and real. These are women who are are very, very sick. And yet through a lot of faults in the systems that they live in, they're unable to get the help that they needed. And a lot of their stories are very much not told at all.
1: Right. So I think the, the, the kind of error case of postpartum psychosis in the States Um, one that many people have heard of, is that of Andrea Yates. Andrea Yates was a woman in Houston who, in 2001, killed her five children while she was suffering from postpartum psychosis. And one of the tragedies of that case is that Andrea Yates did seek help. She did receive help in the years before the killings. Um, She had been treated for postpartum depression, suicidal ideation. She had had suicide attempts. Um, and she'd been successfully treated for a time with an antipsychotic medication, which can be very successful in treating postpartum psychosis. Um, but her family had certain religious beliefs that really encouraged them to keep having children. She went off her medications for her last pregnancy. And this case really brought postpartum psychosis to broad nationwide attention. And, and I would say that anyone who followed that case and that trial closely, which was also a, a huge deal Uh, at the time, got a lot of attention at the time. I think that observer would have likely understood that Andrea Yates was not evil, she was not a a premeditated murderer, that she was just terribly, terribly ill, and that if she had been properly medicated and supervised, that this tragedy likely would have been averted. And it's interesting that you bring up how these cases sort of turn into pop cultural sensations and kind of get distanced from what they really are, Uh, Andrea Yates was originally convicted of murder. I can't remember what the exact charges were. And part of the reason that her conviction was overturned was that a prosecution witness testified that she had gotten the idea to murder her children from an episode of Law and Order. Oh, God. And it turned out after the trial that the episode in question had not aired yet before she killed her children. And, and that was part of what got uh, her conviction overturned. So that's sort of a perfect example of what you're talking about, of kind of making these very real tragedies that happen to very real people and, and kind of blowing them up into uh, a television production or a media circus or something.
0: In your piece, you mentioned that postpartum psychosis and depression are not really widely studied as much as maybe they should be. But you've also mentioned that, particularly in the U.S., there is treatment, but that the treatment doesn't really stick with the person who is affected by it really for long enough. So I guess my, my question for you is, do you think that when it comes to figuring out postpartum psychosis and helping women with postpartum psychosis, is it a, we don't know enough and we aren't studying it enough problem, or is it a, our treatments are lacking?
1: I think it's both. I mean, a lot of, you know, female maladies <laughs> or, or reproductive maladies are, are really under-researched. Jessica Gross just had a great piece about this in the New York Times. And the, the under-researched aspect has to do with persistent systemic sexism, obviously, and also this tendency to kind of pathologize normal stuff like menstruation and childbirth and menopause. It's normal stuff. Um, and there's this tendency to pathologize it or, or even psychologize pain or psychologize illness uh, when it comes to reproductive health. Um, what I find even more surprising is how little we do with what we do know. And a really big example of this is intrusive thoughts. So. Intrusive thoughts are unwanted thoughts about harm coming to your infant. The vast, vast majority of birthing people experience intrusive thoughts. And 50% of birthing people have intrusive thoughts of intentionally harming their child. 50%. Now, this is not postpartum psychosis. This is basically a glitch in your brain (laughs) that is a product of your instinct to protect your child from harm. It is not a warning from your brain that you are a bad parent. Um, But you're not going to know that unless someone you trust, like for instance, a doctor maybe, (laughs) explains it to you. And it's not that hard to explain. I just explained it, right? So we have a situation where literally every other patient walking into an OBGYN office or walking into a pediatrician's office after they give birth Is experiencing this or is going to experience this and it's going to mess with them and it might be exacerbating the anxiety or the depression or the lowness that they're already feeling. And yet even though 50% of the people walking into their office are experiencing this, OBGYNs and pediatricians are not proactively getting the word out about how common and expected these terrible frightening thoughts are. Um, And women are left alone with these thoughts to be confused or ashamed about them, rather than being armed with knowledge and and understanding from their medical providers. I just feel like that alone, that alone, if doctors started talking about this proactively and not waiting for someone to ask about it, because they're not, because they're ashamed of, of what they're thinking, I think that alone could do a great service. The AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics, recommends that pediatricians screen new mothers at their early pediatric appointments.
0: I remember those little sheets where it's got like different, like a, on a range of like one to five or one to 10, or how many times have you thought about harm? Yeah, I, I, I remember those.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, my kids were born eight and six years ago. I didn't get those. Um, I think maybe they've become more popular since then. I, I, I hope they have. Um, were they helpful to you?
0: No. no? I mean, it was weird <laughs> I'm because. Sorry. No, it's okay. I mean, like, I guess it was. In a way, because it made me sort of check in with myself because at the beginning, it's like all doctor's appointments. You have like a doctor's appointment with the pediatrician like two days after birth and then like a week and then like a month. And it felt like I, I couldn't wrap my head around like how many times have I been sad and like how pervasive was it? And, and then there was always this thing in the back of my head of if I'm honest, are they going to do something? I'm okay, but if I'm really honest on this thing, I worried that, like, they would take some sort of action.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and that fear is a justified one because women have been reported to the police for their intrusive thoughts. Um, CPS has been involved. I, I don't know how often it happens, but it definitely happens. And you're absolutely right. You're seeing the pediatrician constantly during those first few weeks, you don't see your ob for six weeks, which always seemed vaguely scandalous to me. <laughs> um, but you are seeing the pediatrician a lot. And so the, the pediatrician could take, you know, more of a role than just handing out a questionnaire. And it sounds like, uh, according to a recent survey, only about 50% of pediatricians actually screen for PMADS um, at these appointments because it's, it's a recommendation, it's not a requirement and you know some pediatricians say i'm not the mom's doctor this is not my responsibility i'm responsible for the baby so there is an argument that that you know this should not be placed on their shoulders at the same time it's it's hard to argue against more of a holistic approach here that you know the person who may be their baby's sole source of nourishment <laughs> that maybe with their baby 24/7 that if the pediatrician has a vested interest in the well-being of the baby they should probably have the same interest in the well-being of of the birthing parent. There's this fragmentation here that I don't think is helpful or, or necessary. Another really important factor here in terms of treatment and in terms of understanding what the best treatment is, is there there's a gap between reproductive medicine and psychiatry. So OBGYN residents, they don't have to do a psychiatric rotation Psychiatric residents don't have to do uh, much in the way of reproductive medicine in their rotations, So it's kind of like with the pediatricians, like, who is responsible exactly for addressing the mental and psychological well-being of of a new mother? And, And why are we sort of isolating the birthing parent's mind from their physical state when those two things can't really be untangled?
0: We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to get into how television and film have explored the postpartum stage. But if you want to hear more from Jessica and myself on another topic, check out our Sleep Plus segment, where today we're going to be talking about Influencer Moms. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash Plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm here again with New Yorker editor, Jessica Winter. When you have a thing that needs to be discussed, but the conversation is stifled, we tend to look to movies and television to help us feel a little less alone in the world. This is one of the reasons I've always loved movies and TV. And Jessica, your article originally started as an exploration of this as it relates to postpartum depression and psychosis. You were originally looking at movies and television and how they explore this topic. So talk us through all of that and what happened.
1: This was where I started. I was just going to look at uh, recent television and and film depictions of of PMADs. And the article, as I continued reporting it, just sort of took on a life of of its own and and went off in different directions. And so all of that um, I set aside. But I did end up watching a lot of stuff. And I think that the big postpartum psychosis piece of media from from the last decade or so was Tully. And Tully was from the the duo who brought us Juno, Diablo Cody, the screenwriter, and Jason Reitman, the director. It starred Charlize Theron as a mother of three, uh, including a newborn. And she develops a very close relationship with her night nurse. And I will avoid spoilers for this (laughs) eight-year-old movie, but I think it's fair to say that Tully portrays postpartum psychosis as this kind of liberating cathartic healing event that like gets you back in touch with your youthful self, a more freewheeling self. I'm sure you can see the problems with this. I, I, I think there was maybe like a totally gonzo version of this conceit that might have worked, but this film is just too earthbound and sentimental and wedded to realism um, to really grab that idea by the lapels and, and make it work. Um, there've been a lot of recent examples. One was Baby Ruby, which um, was more in the straight up horror movie vein. Um, There's a very compelling movie out of France called Saint Omer, which was based on a real life postpartum psychosis and filicide case. Um, that's more of a character study and a courtroom drama. There's a movie called A Mouthful of Air with Amanda Seyfried. Um, which is a pretty realistic drama. So there's a lot of different genre approaches and tonal approaches um, to this. But what you see with a lot of these movies, no matter what the tone or genre is, is the use of doubles. You're constantly seeing these two women characters who are kind of mirrors of each other, or you have a single character who splits. And what both of those are obviously conveying is that the the woman overtaken by a postpartum mood disorder, the woman overtaken by postpartum psychosis, she is no longer herself, right? She becomes a different person or she splits into two people. She absents herself from her true self, right? Or the illness does that. And that makes a lot of sense dramatically. Like postpartum psychosis is so scary and extreme. It makes sense to apprehend it in fiction as like a supernatural event or a demonic possession or something.
0: It's really interesting that you mention the demonic parts of it and that, that you looked into horror movie because when I did a little bit of research into postpartum depression and TV and movies, I mean if you just Google that, you will mostly get what look like horror movies. There's even a Brooke Shields documentary called When the Bow Breaks, which is very much not a horror movie, but the poster looks like a horror movie. It's a woman crying and looking up, and the colors are these cold, dark blues, and she's gripping a crib like she's afraid for her life. And there's also this thriller about a surrogate mom with the same title. There's also a Martin Sheen movie about a serial killer of children that's also called When the Bow Breaks. I I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting that that particular title especially is very much linked to horror movies. What do you make of culture using this for a horror genre movie.
1: Right. So early parenthood as a horror movie, as, as we were saying a minute ago, it's intuitive, right? Because parenthood brings you to these dark places. And it is this kind of bloody, scary, crazy event, right? But these insights are also pretty worn out at this partly because they are so intuitive, right? It's it's become kind of a cliche. Amanda Hess had a great piece in the New York Times, again, the New York Times, uh, not too long ago about this, about early parenthood as a horror show or a horror-ish show. Um, And what's really funny about this and really ironic is that if you reach way back, you find a bunch of, like, straight white male directors who got to this before it became a cliche. Oh, God. (laughs) So... So, so you've got Rosemary's Baby, obviously, Roman Polanski's oh, yeah. movie uh, from 1968, and, and you have two movies that I totally love. There's Eraserhead from David Lynch, David Lynch's first feature from 1977, or it was completed in 1977. And in Eraserhead, you have this hapless young father who his, his, the, the mother of the child walks out, and he has to tend to this hideous monster child there's a movie called The Brood by David Cronenberg uh, from 1979. And in that one, a very capable young father watches as his estranged wife. She has all these past traumas and they manifest. They, they become flesh in this army of hideous, again, hideous monster children. And you know, Eraserhead and The Brood, they're gross. They're kind of sexist. I love Cronenberg so much, but The Brood is definitely like his M.R.A. movie. Like He made, <laughs> it, he made it after he got divorced um, and had a bad custody battle. But I find these movies exhilarating and, and comforting in how they revel in blood and filth and gore. They feel honest. And I think they feel honest because they're shameless, right? Because fathers are immune to shame and mothers are obligated to shame. Um, And that because of the way our culture is set up and and that lack of self consciousness really feels visionary to me. And I feel quite strange opining that the best movies about postpartum psychosis are like weird horror movies (laughs) made by straight white men who were born at the end of the silent generation. Um, But there you have it.
0: And when you're in the throes of it, I'm sure it feels like you're in a weird, crazy horror movie. I mean, some of the depictions that you described in your piece and some of the other descriptions of it that I've I've read or seen in other places is it it, it feels very much that you are not of your body, which is very much a horror trope.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people talk about the detachment that they feel. That they're sort of floating outside of their body, watching, um, watching themselves care for their child or go through the motions of the day or something, and that if you're levitating outside of yourself, that that can feel pretty supernatural. Absolutely, um, I, I actually I've been not to drag it back to one of my obsessions, but I I was actually thinking about Cronenberg a lot um, while I was preparing for this this interview because I realized that, and not to get too film nerdy about this, but like Cronenberg's movies, they, especially the early ones, they do not believe in a split between the brain and the body, right? They do not believe in like the mind levitating outside of the body and observing it, right? Like in his movies, the body is a kind of mind, right? The body expresses ideas. The body is a repository of thought. The body is a thinking entity. And it might sound strange, but like, I feel like we need more of a Cronenberg approach to mental health in general and postpartum mood disorders in particular. You know, it's a wild, wild thing that happens to a person. And um, I, I just think that we need to integrate. We don't recognize that the body and the mind come into conflict with each other um, after childbirth. And I, I just think that if, if we could integrate the two things and not fragment them, that could be really useful. And I guess I learned that from watching some really disgusting horror movies
0: <laughs> I also wanted to touch on television, where it seems like we're getting a bit more of the postpartum depression storylines. Recently, in Fleischman is in trouble. I thought they did a pretty good job of exploring the really, really the anxiety part of motherhood, the I have to do everything right, which was definitely the sort of depression that I or anxiety that I had. um, And the sort of what is my identity part of that. And then there was also in the sort of 20 teens, a surge, it seemed like of postpartum storylines. There was a glamour article by Megan Angelo pointing this out titled why you're seeing so many more postpartum storylines on TV and why that's great. It talked about girls, Blackish, Nashville, Jane the Virgin. Do you think that TV might be a better avenue for these types of stories? And do you think that this portrayal has sort of stalled lately?
1: You know, I don't know if it has stalled because I haven't seen a lot of the television portrayals. I don't think it's necessarily better or worse to need a kind of like iterative or episodic. Portrayal that unfolds over many episodes because Fleischman is in trouble. Did it all in one episode. It was obviously contextualized by the rest of the series, but um, that was one of the best recent portrayals of postpartum mood disorders um, I've I've seen. Certainly, in the movies that I've seen, Um, it's Claire Danes playing Rachel Fleischman, and I think part of what was so impressive about it was that it depicted a lot of different facets. And triggers of these disorders, and it took a certain degree of dramatic license, but it still felt very true and visceral and real. So I guess we can spoil this. Rachel has a traumatic birth, so she's she's more or less assaulted by her OBGYN. Uh, terrible scene. She suffers from postpartum depression, but she finds more comfort in a support group for sexual assault survivors than a support group for people with postpartum depression. And I thought that was a very interesting, dramatic decision in terms of how Rachel integrates her experience and, and understands what she's going through. And then she seems to recover for a long time, but as you point out, she recovers in this very type-A, workaholic, have-to-succeed, have-to-do-everything-right, you know, possibly manic kind of way. And in retrospect, that feels maybe kind of ominous. And then many years later, she lapses into what seems like psychosis. And again, that's not necessarily a textbook depiction of how a postpartum mood disorder progresses. It's certainly not a textbook depiction of postpartum psychosis, but it, it makes very compelling and powerful dramatic sense, um, not least because Clara Danes is amazing. And she does her Claire Danes cry face, and she just absolutely crushes uh this role so i i I think fleischman is in trouble is really uh, like kind of a milestone um in this in this particular kind of depiction yeah
0: jessica winter is an editor for the new yorker her piece is titled what we still don't understand about postpartum psychosis jessica thank you so 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 much for joining us here today on the waves
1: thank you it was my pleasure
0: that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shana Roth, and Tori Dominguez. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer. And Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Please email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member, and since you're a member, you get this weekly bonus segment, and today, Jessica and I are going to talk about Influencer Parents. This was really a great month so far in parenting articles, sort of from all directions. Jessica, there was your incredible piece, and then we had this really interesting one from Teen Vogue's Fortessa Latifi titled, Influencer Parents and the Kids Who Had Their Children Made into Content. When I read this piece, I thought it was very interesting, but there was also a part of me that couldn't help but thinking that this is not a new thing. I mean, there was toddlers in tiaras for many, many years. <laughs> Facebook has been around for an incredibly long time. Jessica, what is your take on on parents who are sort of trying to use their kids for for monetary gains in a way?
1: What's really sad about these kids who are now adults who are describing these feelings of betrayal and vulnerability, and also the parents who share who are now, you know, just ratcheting back how much they share and how they share. Um, This reckoning that's happening, anyone could have seen this coming, right? (laughs) And did see it coming. Like, we knew that these kids were going to grow up and be like, what did you do? Why Mm -hmm. did you do it? Um, And the reason we knew was because of um, generations of child stars of movies and television, right? Like, We know that a lot of kids' self-perception is warped by being conditioned from an early age to seek this constant external validation from strangers. We know that these kids are messed up by being made to feel financially responsible for their family. They're economically exploited in all kinds of ways. And you can see how their relationships with their parents are warped by the fact that their stage parent is their boss and their employee at the same time instead of just their parent. And I wonder if maybe it's actually worse with the online influencers because the parent is also like the auteur of the content.
0: Right, they're like the director and the business manager. Screenwriter,
1: exactly, yeah. I think that the problems there are compounded. So anyone with half a brain could have extrapolated all of these cautionary tales and applied them to like the sharenting complex. Um, And that's part of why this is just so grim.
0: That was just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash Plus.